If you like Weirder Than Code, you should check out the Transatlantic Cable podcast from Kapersky Lab. They condense the most interesting InfoSec and cybersecurity news in 20 minutes or less. Check it out and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to episode 119 of Greater Than Code. I'm one of your hosts, Jamie Hampton. I'm here with my friend, Christina. Hi, everyone. Hi, Jamie. Nice to be on the call this week. I'd like to welcome John with his awesome hair. Thank you, Christina. And I'm here to introduce Bianca Escalante. Bianca works the intersection of diversity and inclusion, technology and social impact. She was born in Los Angeles to Central American parents, grew up in Southern California, Graduated from UC Davis, and not long after that, moved to San Francisco, where she's lived for the last 17 years. The majority of her career has been spent working in STEM education nonprofits like SMASH and the Children's Creativity Museum, all of which provided her with a foundation of knowledge to work in DNI in the tech sector. Most recently, Bianca was a senior manager of social impact at GitHub, where she led the company's hyperlocal initiatives, getting GitHub and many of its employees to engage with some of San Francisco's most pressing issues. Currently, Bianca is taking a nice, long self-care break where she's learning Italian, traveling as much as possible, and doing a shit ton of baking for friends and family. And that sounds amazing. (laughs) Welcome to the show, Bianca. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I forgot about the shit ton of baking that I was doing, but (laughs) it has been one of the more exciting parts of my life. I made these amazing brownies last week, if I don't say so myself. I need brownies with the snow. (laughs) It's good brownie weather, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, we like to kick off the show with the question that you probably know we're going to ask, which is, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? I've been thinking about this. What I used to say to people is that my superpower is actually getting people to do stuff that I want them to do without them even knowing that they're doing it because I want them to do it. And now I just say I know how to leverage my influence and and be persuasive when I need to (laughs) because I realized that sounded kind of manipulative and weird before. But as I really started thinking about it, I was like, wait a minute, just one? Like, and not from like an arrogant standpoint, but from the perspective of like, I'm a brown woman who works in the tech industry. I need to have multiple superpowers. I think most people from marginalized backgrounds have to have multiple superpowers. And we need to be ready at any second when someone doesn't believe that our superpowers are superpower to pull out another superpower from our back pocket. So we've got superpowers on superpowers on superpowers, I think. So that's one thing that I was thinking. But like, when I really started thinking about what my superpowers were that I've brought to my professional career, and even my personal life, I was like, well, I'm really good at finding common ground and building from that. And I'm really good at picking up on really subtle facial cues or vocal cues from folks. I'm good at getting beneath the surface quickly. And then I realized all of those things actually stem from my position as a cultural broker, which I think is a is a role that a lot of people who are the children of immigrants kind of share, but maybe a lot of people don't exactly know that there's a term for it. I didn't know. I like that term. I'm going to start using that now. I'm a cultural broker. You are a cultural broker. It's something that I've been exploring a lot, actually, recently, because when I think about identity as an asset, I'm like, oh, hell yeah. No, this this cultural broker role gives me so many assets. And I think that when we think about being the kid of immigrants, we think about, you know, certain things that we did as kids at a very young age, like translating for our parents and stuff like that. But it wasn't just a matter of like, translating for me, it was really kind of, and and keep in mind, I'm doing all this while I'm five years old, Um, really kind of like understanding uh, American culture in a way that my mom and dad who weren't from here couldn't understand and having to be that bridge for them. So like, you know, having to explain to my dad what a dad joke is. (laughs) Because we don't we don't have the phrase in Spanish. There's no like, there's no, <laughs> but even humor, right? Like what tends to be funny to Americans might not always be funny to Latinx people. 
right? And what might be funny to Latinx people might not be funny to Americans. Like, we tend to see a lot of like slapsticky stuff on our media and we see people falling and hurting themselves. And it's like, ah, that's hilarious. But some people are like, oh, are they okay? You know? <laughs> that's really interesting because when I was learning Spanish, I felt like the first time that like someone sent me like a meme in Spanish and I was like, ah, I was like, oh, yes, I'm doing so good. That was like my, that was like my benchmark. <laughs> it's, okay. And let me tell you one thing that I really struggled with as a kid with this whole like kind of being a bridge and having to be American, but also be Latinx or my parents, I have a terribly dry sense of humor. And I think a lot of Latino people will tell you that sarcasm just doesn't really doesn't go well. It doesn't go well, right, Christina? Like, (laughs) it just doesn't really fly for us. And like, my mom would get so upset when I would be sarcastic and she'd be like, I can't believe what a daughter I've raised. And I'm like, no, ma, it's just a joke. <laughs> now she definitely gets it and she's way more amenable to it. And now even she's sarcastic. Growing up with that gives me translation skills that go beyond just literal translations. And I think that that has been super useful and probably you know, that, like I said, all of those qualities that stem from being in that cultural broker position has probably been what has enabled me to do some of my best work in tech in terms of relating to people and connecting with people. How do you see that interacting with um, code switching? It's funny because I do quite a bit, not a, not a lot, but, you know, I do quite a bit of speaking. And the talk that I gave at RubyConf in November I was definitely co-switching during that talk. I was like, okay, this is my tech developer, RubyConf voice. And then when I think about the talk that I gave at Codeland a few months before that, it was in a completely different tone with a different kind of humor. And when I think about the talks that I give with like Code 2040, then I'm like, I'm talking to my family, right? So it definitely changes from time to time. Some people say... You know, and I've heard this argument that like code switching is not good because you're sort of toning down your authentic self. But I don't believe that at all. I can understand that argument and I can understand how there is a fine line between being able to code switch really well and also just completely 100% assimilating. But I think that code switching is is almost like being able to speak different languages and being able to know your audience and being able to connect with your audience. I don't see it as a bad thing. It's actually really hard to do. My one issue with code switching, I think, is just, I think for people from marginalized backgrounds, it's exhausting. It can be really, really exhausting to have to use that part of your brain. But in some ways, it's like, it also is a superpower, right? Because it kind of kicks in before we can even notice it kicks in sometimes. It becomes almost instinctual for so many people who have been having to do it throughout their whole lives. I kind of look at it as like a survival mechanism. You know, I wake up in the morning and like when I'm in work mode, that's like Christina in work mode, right? And then when I come back into like I step off the subway or, you know, my taxi and I'm back in what I call the hood, right? Um, Me. Again, because I'm like with my people and close to my people and I can let my guard down and I can just be me and let loose. Uh, but in the corporate world, you really can't be yourself. And it's very nuanced. It depends on your specific situation, your environment and who is the majority. But I don't think that like you can be your complete, full, authentic self. Unfortunately. Yeah, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. I don't know that I have ever... Well, you know, I'm going to say, actually, I was speaking to somebody recently, and I was saying, you know, that job that I had, it was a job that I had about five years ago, was the only job where I felt like I could be my authentic self and where I also felt like people saw my identity as a woman and as a woman of color as an asset. And that was the default. And that is the only place that I've ever worked where that has been the case. And I think that's why I've been thinking about identity so much lately. Because I'm like, you know, if venture capitalists can do pattern matching, which is essentially seeing some element of whiteness and maleness as an asset, why can't 
black and brown people have our identities be an asset as well, too. And I remember, so I used to work in education before I went into tech. And I remember sitting down and chatting with this guy. And he was talking about testing and standardized testing and what we test for and how, you know, our, our testing system is just kind of broken. But what he was doing, and it was so fascinating to me, and I was like, yes, I'm so glad somebody's doing this, is he was trying to translate qualities and skills like grit and hustle and diplomacy, things that like hood kids grow up with naturally. He was trying to translate those into a test that would assess how you were with those things. Because I, I don't know if y'all remember or if y'all pay attention to like sort of public education research, but grit, you know, five or 10 years ago was huge. Everybody was talking about that, about what a huge impact grit can make on your educational experience. And this guy was like, well, how do we test for those things, right? How do we test for a kid who's grown up, you know, maybe spending more time on the streets than they have at home? And the skills that they've gained in being able to do that, right? The diplomacy skills and being able to speak to anyone from a different background, the assessment skills and being able to kind of figure out a situation, figure out if it's safe, figure out if it's not safe, figure out how they're going to get through to someone or how they're going to get out of a sticky situation. The adaptability, which that is one thing that I talk to people all the time is especially working in DNI, I always call it the mental flow chart. Like when someone says something to me, that is offensive, right? When, when I'm talking about DNI issues, and someone says like, but you know, if we hire for diversity, aren't we lowering the bar, hmm. which happens all the time, all the time. And in those situations, I have to go through this super fast mental flow chart and assess the situation and figure out if this is actually, if, if I'm speaking to someone that I can turn this into a teachable moment, or if this is one that I just have to write off, or if this is one that I have to speak to aside later on in private. And so my mind goes through these like questions super, super fast. And I figure out in a matter of like a second, what sort of course of action I'm going to proceed with. And that is I think probably another cultural broker skill, right? I keep going back to this cultural broker thing. It's obviously been on my mind a lot lately. And I think we don't talk about it enough in the tech industry because I think that it's a huge, huge, huge asset that we don't recognize. And I think it go it also goes back to seeing someone's identity as an asset, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's a great central concept that sort of ties together all of the the sort of other skills that you've been talking about. So you talked about having an experience one place where you felt like your identity was valued. And I'm wondering, like, what are the actual things that you saw on like a day to day basis that caused you to feel that way at that job? Okay, so one that stood out to me from day one, like literally day one, actually before day one, because I remember this actually came up when I was interviewing, right? One of the people who interviewed me at this job, this was, oh my goodness, this was eight years ago now. And one of the people who interviewed me was Nicole Sanchez, who some of you may know. She was the VP of Social Impact at GitHub. And so she interviewed me and I was sitting in there like it was my first time I had ever been interviewed by black and brown folks. And I was like, holy shit. And I like Nicole came in and I was like, What's going on here? Like, this is, what, what is this? This is amazing. Everyone here is from a really badass, diverse background. On top of that, y'all have PhDs and MBAs and you're like super educated, super smart. Like, what do I need to do to work here? Like, I'll scrub your toilets. I don't care. And Nicole was kind of like, you know, calm down, but she was very chill and she was like, yes, we have built something very, very special here. And I'm not going to deny that. And I remember coming in the first day. And, you know, like I said, I'd, I'd mostly worked worked in STEM education. And I think it was our director of programs was having a conversation with our director of research on behavioral issues among black boys, and how this impacts their educational experience, and how this kind of, you know, systemic treatment of young black boys in schools ends up negatively impacting our society as a whole. 
And I was sitting there listening to them. I'm like, they're like in the kitchen in front of everyone. They're full on talking about black boys here. Like, what? Like, don't get me wrong. I was here for it. But I'd never been in a workplace where a conversation like that was just happening out in the open about young black boys. And it was two black scholars having this conversation. And so I was sitting there kind of listening to them. And they were like, well, what do you think? And I was like, well, I don't, you know, I don't know if this is my area of expertise, but I can say having grown up in a really diverse environment, I saw this firsthand and I saw that teachers were leading from a place of demonizing young black boys, frankly. And oftentimes there were situations that the teachers were not ready to handle. And so they were just like, okay, go to the principal's office. But there was always more going on beneath the level and, you know, underneath the surface. And I think that, I don't know, just sitting there in the kitchen and having that conversation and having them, you know, ask me what I thought and, and also like listening to them and learning as well. It's like, okay, this is what we do here. We normalize these conversations. We don't shy away from these conversations. We speak about race openly and we value perspectives, not just because it's a good perspective. We value a perspective because we honor the fact that it's been shaped by, you know, the perspective holders experience and how they've navigated the world. And knowing that my own identity shapes the way I navigate the world and influences how I assess situations and how I form my own opinions, and that somebody out there honors that and values that was like astounding to me. I don't know that I've ever been anywhere that put more thought into how to really value perspectives from marginalized folks, right? It was your identity as an asset. And we want to hear about it. And it wasn't, they were so good at it because I never felt like I was speaking on behalf of every Latina, which is (laughs) how I have felt in some other roles. Um, I never felt that way. I just felt that there was so much respect given. And another, another concept that we talked about a lot, which we don't talk about enough in tech, I think, is the concept of distance traveled. Maybe as somebody who was a part of this amazing community and all of these folks went to Berkeley and Stanford and I was there with my measly UC Davis degree. <laughs> I didn't always feel like I measured up. But then I remember sitting down with someone one day and saying like, look, yes, I have an MBA from this place. I also have both my parents who went to college and both of them grew up working and we grew up middle class or upper middle class. Is that the same for you? And I was like, well, no, my dad didn't make it past the sixth grade and my mom barely squeezed past high school. And my dad came to the United States in the cargo hold of a ship, undocumented. And, you know, he worked as a truck driver and supported our family of five on $30,000 a year. And they're like, okay, so you came from way back there and you got here. Your distance traveled is actually a lot more than mine. And that's something to be really, really proud of. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. I have come a long way, haven't I? I mean, I think when you're the oldest in a family and your parents are immigrants, you don't stop enough and recognize your own accomplishments because you're used to just kind of go, go, go and set the example. And, you know, you don't have time Mm -hmm. for self-care. You don't have time to, to think about things. You just have to keep going. And when I stopped and I thought about it, I was like, actually, yeah, I have come a long way. Like I had to figure all this shit out on my own. Nobody, I didn't have anybody to help me with my financial aid application. I didn't have anybody to help me with college application. No one in my entire family, aunts, uncles, no one had been to a four year university. And, you know, to this day, everybody in my family, because we're Latinos and we're kind of sexist, they still insist that my cousin Yusuf, who's two years younger than me, went to college first. And I'm like, wait a minute, I've let it go. I've come to terms with it. I'm okay. I'm okay. <laughs> That's a great metaphor for making visible those differences. I mean, I, I've been aware that, like, obviously people have those those different experiences and getting to where they are currently, but that distance traveled makes it such a visceral, obvious difference that I really like that. Yeah. And the, <clears throat> the thing that I really like about that concept, and I remember speaking to one of my colleagues at GitHub about this, and he was a straight, cis, white dude. And externally, 
looked like all the other guys. I'm pretty sure his name was Matt or John and just kind of fit the bill of the standard issue tech dude. But there was one day where he and I started chatting and we started getting to know each other a little bit more. And it turns out that he'd actually grown up in a part of, I think it was Maine where opioid use and meth use was crazy and ran rampant. And a lot of people in his family had been incarcerated and he had, he had this distance traveled as well. And I think that that's one of the things that I also love about the concept is literally anyone can have that. And it's a great way to kind of get a little deeper and find out a little more about folks. And it's not to say that people who maybe don't have that same level of distance travel are, you know, to be completely discounted. I think definitely, obviously, they have assets and they have skill sets and they're great mentors. But, you know, I think paying attention to where someone came from and where they are now is a huge thing that I really, I really, as I see more and more news about what's happening in the tech industry, I really think it would behoove us to pay more attention to that and to, like I said, identity as an asset. I hope we get there one day. Maybe it's because I'm staring out the window and it's raining, but it feels really gloomy right now. (laughs) Uh, Well, so I I don't want to make it even gloomier, but you were talking about being like the first in your family to kind of, you know, travel this road, right? Like go this distance. Yeah. And I'm wondering because of that and, and having the mentality of like this go, 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 how do you reconcile like this whole thing about failure and in tech, there's this notion of, you know, fail fast and also, you know, whether it's software, whatever technology, whether it's personal, whether it's a startup. For me personally, like I've really struggled with that because even like I've had white male managers that have said, it's okay to fail. It's a learning experience. And I'm like, you don't understand where I come from. Yeah. Failure is not an option. And yeah. you keep telling me that it's okay, but it's not okay. Like, even if you think it's okay, like this is what has propelled me forward, um, mm-hmm. knowing that I don't have an option to fail, right? Like, but I have the world on my shoulders and mm-hmm. just saying, okay, let me just, I'll try my best because it's okay to fail, you know? So I'm wondering <laughs> how, how you've kind of dealt with that throughout your career. I don't fail. <laughs> nah. uh, no, I'm kidding. But like, <clears throat> no, but oh gosh, like listening to you. So first of all, I think that perspective of like, you know, fail fast, fail often, that's a super, super privileged perspective. Like, Mm -hmm. let me just like sum it up and say that's a very privileged perspective. Yeah, there is, as I'm sure you know, Christina, and you know, John and Jamie, maybe you've experienced this as well. There is an element of representation. And I have always felt like I cannot fail. Because I know how this will reflect on people like me, right? Like, if I could explain the sort of hope and fear that I have around people like Arlen Hamilton, (laughs) and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, like people who are very visible right now, and who are completely blazing trails, and who, in my opinion, I think they don't have a lot of room to fail, right? Look at what's happening with Bill and Omar right now. I'm like, holy shit, that was quick. Like people are turning on her really damn quick. And she is a black woman. And just last week, I was tweeting about how important it was for people who are migrating to the United States to pay attention to the fact that it is a black Muslim woman who is here advocating for them. And now this week, Trump is like calling for her resignation. I'm like, damn, that was quick. That to me is like a kind of perfect example of how some people just, we don't have the same leeway. We don't have the same option to fail. Right. That sucks. That does suck. I've never thought about it quite that way before, but I guess I can kind of relate. I feel like I'm letting down the trans community if I don't have like my shit together at every point in my life. Yeah. That is so much pressure. Right. And it's like, the thing that we need to think about is how do we build workplaces where we can take that kind of pressure off of people? Like, because it's already a high pressure industry as it is. And then you add in all those intersections and all those nuances of like the pressure that we add on ourselves. 
damn, how do we get anything done? <laughs> I think the thing, I've actually been thinking about this a little bit recently too. And I think the thing that really is, I find very difficult for me. And I wonder if maybe you can relate to this is that like being a part of a marginalized group is like a struggle a lot of the time. And there's like pain involved with that. But I feel like I'm not allowed to own that pain because Mm -hmm. particularly, and maybe this is unique to the trans community, maybe not, but I feel like if I express that I'm feeling pain and struggle over my experience as being a trans person, there's such a push for like, it's so great to be trans, like you have to love who you are and you have to accept yourself. And like, I agree with those things, but like, there's also pain involved. And I feel like I can't express that pain or people will be like, no, you have to love yourself to be an example for other people to love themselves. Oh, yeah, Yeah. that's rough. That's real. That's real. Or they do the like, you know, it could be worse. Which is like, oh my god, like, don't do that, please. (laughs) Like, you should be thankful, you know? I'm like, oh no. That's tough too, because like, when I think about it for myself, like, oh my god, it could be so much worse. Like, I have a lot of privilege in other areas of my life. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But your feelings are still valid, right? It's totally true. But like, I even convince myself that like, my feelings aren't valid because of it. And like, I think other people are doing this too. My perception is that maybe people are repressing a lot of feelings. Like I know that I'm repressing some feelings, but like, I wonder like how many other feelings other people are repressing that like, I don't even know about. And like, maybe if we could all talk about our feelings about this, like together, it would be like healing, but like, nobody can. <laughs> That's what I feel Nobody like can. Yep. Nobody can. And you're you know, right. Let me tell you, like, so funny. I got invited to a healing circle for Latinas. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to say yes, but I don't know what this is about. Like, what's going to happen? We all going to cry. We all going to, I don't know, right? I'm so used to having this very, and I am very strong, but it is also a front sometimes, right? Like, I'm so used to projecting this, like, confidence and strength and that everything is okay because that is what I've had to do from the moment from, you know, as far back as I can remember. And I got invited. Yeah, since I literally since I was born, I was like six months old, telling everybody what's what. The fact that I defaulted to like being nervous about what this is just shows, I think, how as a society, we kind of it's weird, because I feel like we fear that kind of rawness and discussion about emotions and about feelings. And at the very same time, we crave it so much. Like yep. there have been so many moments I feel like in the last year where, and you know, and I'm, I'm married and I'll tell my husband, like, I just, I feel so lonely. I feel so yep. lonely. This like, I don't understand, you know, I have friends and I have you and I have family and I have all of these people. And yet I still feel so lonely. And it's this like sort of deeper connection that I'm really looking to have, but it's, it's hard to get that with people nowadays. And I think, Oh my God, so hard. <laughs> it's so hard. I, I, and I do think that like a part of it is human beings are amazing in their resilience. But I will say, especially for people of marginalized backgrounds, the last two years, there has been a sort of fear and a heaviness that I think we're all carrying and they're very scary times that we live in and we have the ability to wake up every day and you know keep going and persevere but oftentimes what we're doing is we're suppressing a lot that we're really feeling and we're just telling ourselves like I don't have time to think about this or other people are depending on me or I need to get this job done for work And we don't take time to sort of acknowledge that, like, there might actually be some, like, low-level trauma happening in the background for us. And I was talking to somebody about it yesterday, and I was just like, I wonder how different I'm going to feel when this administration changes and when it becomes an administration that is more focused on inclusion and the aspects of America that I think actually make this country really great, not these terrible, terrible fucking things that we're saying right now about other people and these terrible ways that we're making other people feel. I think all of that really does take a toll. 
And, you know, no matter how good of a day we can have, it's always kind of there in the background. It kind of shifted the conversation a little bit. Sorry about that. Man, we're getting gloomy. <laughs> but maybe, maybe this is what we need is we need to be okay with gloominess. We need to be okay with stuff that doesn't always feel good and that doesn't sound good. There's a time and a place for like joy and happiness and supporting each other and partying. But we also need to, I feel like you can't experience that to the fullest until you kind of get down in the dumps sometimes and then you reach out to other people but i also think the full human experience <laughs> the full human experience and like one of the things that i think is amazing is in these moments of like feeling alone or feeling sad or feeling scared they also sort of become opportunities to see the best of humanity and that can be really really reassuring right when i'm not feeling well and somebody just randomly texts me and says, Hey, I love you. You're amazing. And I'm like, wow, there's still those little things. Like those, those are so, so powerful. Right. I feel like there was a shift when we kind of, you know, with the introduction of smartphones and social media, I feel like we lost some of that human in-person connection. Right. And I, and I didn't realize how important that was until I felt like I didn't have it. Um, and how much I valued like actual phone call. Like, you know, what is that? Like people actually use the phone to make phone calls, right? Like nowadays it's like, I don't speak to, you know, quote unquote friends for months on end because our conversations are entirely via text. And I realized that it was kind of burning me out. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to accept that I need that connection. I need to hear voice. I need to give you a hug. Like I need it. Like just social doesn't do it for me, right? Like it doesn't fill me up the way that I need. It's like a temporary high, but it doesn't fill me up the way that I need to be filled up. And I, you know, I feel the same, Bianca, like with the loneliness, it's, it's the same thing. Like it's that. And I realize like it's that human connection because when I'm with a group of friends and we're outside and I feel that warmth, like it re-energizes me. Mm-hmm. And that's what I came to that realization. I'm like the social media it has its, it's a, it's a gift and a curse, right? Like it has its positives, but it's also like very damaging. And I don't think we're going to see the effects. We're starting to see some of the effects, but I don't think we're going to see the real effects for probably like another decade or so. I don't know. Yeah. It's changing yeah. the dynamic of the human dynamic, right? Um, it is pretty scary. I've always thought that I'm so God, it feels so good to hear you say that. I've always thought that it was. And I know people do have this conversation about how social media has changed the way we connect with each other and how we communicate with each other. But there was a part of me that always thought, especially I'm coming up on my, I'll be 40 next month. And I, there was a part of me that thought like, okay. Girl, edit that. You want to, you, you want a job? You got to edit that part. <laughs> yeah. <That's the> age. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> Thankfully, I look a lot younger. Uh-huh. <laughs> you uh, do. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. I'm going to lie about my age. No, I'm kidding. But but I thought it was a generational thing. You know, the fact that like, I'll be honest, like talking on the phone is hard for me. Like I'm one of those people that has a voicemail that says, if you want to hear from me, you should probably send me a text right after you leave me a voice message. But in person stuff is so refreshing now. And people I think don't understand. And they're like, Oh, can we, um, you know, set up a phone call? Or can we set up a zoom? I'm like, well, we're in the same city. I don't see why we can't just go and talk in person. Like, yeah, I think I definitely missed that. And I push for that. And I feel like a weirdo pushing for that. Like, okay, old lady, you want to see my face (laughs) in person? What's that about? (laughs) Yeah. Pivoting the conversation a little bit. Like, what do you do as far as like self-care? Because I feel like one of the reasons why I left even anything related to DNI, like I don't even want to hear the words diversity and inclusion. But I'm an old lady and I've been in tech for a very long time and I don't, you know, I don't like the world we live in right now. And so, you know, I just feel like how do you, I had to step back. I had to step away and kind of just try to help people, not on the scale level, but on a like in person, personal level. What do you do to kind of fill your cup, right? Like this DNI work is very challenging. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're pushing against this very strong current. How do you stay seen? <laughs> I don't know that I do. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, 
Yeah, like there's a sort of double bind that I think DNI practitioners don't talk about. And you just touched on it, which is that we have the responsibility of leading the charge and blazing the trail at our companies. But like, at what personal costs to ourselves, right? Because DNI is very different. Most of the people who do this work are doing this work from a very personal place. This is not just a job for us. This is a goddamn revolution that we have been fighting for our whole lives, probably, right? That is honestly, you know, and my my last day at GitHub was October 15th. And since then, I have not been working, you know, I've definitely been applying and and doing, you know, the tech thing and having coffees and, and stuff like that. But mostly, I've really had to just sort of stop and be with my own thoughts in a way that has been, frankly, really hard and really uncomfortable these last, especially I would say, December and January. Those months tend to be challenging for me. My dad died five years ago, suddenly in a car accident a few days before New Year's. And so late December and January tend to be really, really challenging times for me where I sort of, I guess, revisit a good amount of trauma. And I'm in therapy. I'm going to be 100% honest that like early and often, everyone should go. Therapy is amazing. Like I am a huge, huge advocate of it. I've had to convince a lot of people in my family that I am not crazy because Latinos have a very different perspective when it comes to therapy. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm not crazy. I just have a lot going on. And I think that one of the things that I have come to realize in the last few weeks is that professional trauma is a thing. And if you're a DNI person and you're going to be really good at the DNI stuff, there's no way you can do your best work if you're suppressing trauma that might be related to what you experience in the workplace. To DNI work. Yeah. yeah. And so, Yeah. yeah, I have kind of been in the mode of like, and I'm so, so fortunate that I have the opportunity to take this time off and to be able to do this. And I understand that not everyone has that, but I've been able to have that. And what I've had to do is literally just move through a lot of really painful experiences and just kind of live with it. And I know that right now what I'm experiencing is a recharge moment. Mm-hmm. But let me tell you, I'm nervous about going back into a DNI role. I'm very nervous about going back into a DNI role. And I also feel to be a hundred percent real with y'all, very disillusioned with mm-hmm. a lot of diversity and inclusion practitioners that are out there. It feels so much to me like... Like a business? Oh my God, it has become such a business. And it's like, you know, for an industry that is so focused on data and numbers, there are so many people who are doing this work that are not making a significant impact, that are not changing the numbers and are not changing the data and are not improving retention at their company. But really, it's become a way for companies to signal that like, oh, we have this. And, mm-hmm. you know, this is our, it, it becomes kind of a window dressing thing. And Has do I ever called it brown washing? <laughs> <laughs> so, but it, but I've it, never it, heard that term. That's interesting. That I don't know either. It just came to me. <laughs> like, do I want to buy into that is the question that I'm asking myself, right? As someone who this is one of the things that is so frustrating about DNI work. The solutions to the problems that we have with respect to diversity and inclusion in tech, they're not that hard. And there's a lot of people who have the answers. The problem with this work, the reason it is so slow is because so many folks are resistant to it. And right now, in addition to moving through trauma, I am also building up my sort of patience tolerance, because I think I was becoming less and less tolerant of how slow going this work was. And now I'm trying to acknowledge that, you know, we are doing this work within a system that was not designed for this work at all. And it is unfortunately going to take time. 
I do still believe in it. I know that it is important. Like, man, I'm hearing all of this stuff about, you know, you hear about this sort of bigger picture problems in tech, like, you know, Amazon's facial recognition or Facebook facilitating a genocide in Myanmar. You hear about these like sort of world, these global problems. But the connection that I'm wondering if people are making is that it actually doesn't start with those huge global problems. It starts with the exclusion of perspectives and at the very bottom, but at all levels of a company. Tech is going to continue on this path of enabling these horrible things unless people really start to connect the dots between diversity and inclusion work and the problems that are happening in our world today. And I'm not sure that people are connecting those dots as much as they should be, right? Maybe that's just me feeling a little disillusioned right now, though. Those are the end result of the context that was created inside that company. They're not the... Yeah. Exactly. A hundred percent. And we keep asking ourselves, well, how do we fix these end results? How do we fix these end results? And I would love to see solutions for the end results. Don't get me wrong. And I am a strong believer in more government oversight and more government intervention for this kind of stuff. I don't know that our government is savvy enough yet to really understand these principles, but I think that they need to... This is knowledge that they need to invest in. Yeah, I just, it's kind of like you're sitting there sort of having all of these answers. And it's like your Hermione Granger moment, right? Where Hermione has all the damn answers. And the teachers are just so damn sick of her raising her hand and they refuse to call on her. And they're like, anyone, anyone? And Hermione is sitting there like, oh, 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 I know the answer, I know the answer. And it's like, anyone? Anyone? Nope. Nobody has the answer. Okay, bye. That's what it can feel like sometimes. So many people out there have the strategies and the answers and the solutions to how to fix a lot of these problems, but the powers that be just don't want to see it. And they convince themselves that it's not that they don't want to see it. It's that best practice has told us that this is how we actually need to approach it. But what I've noticed recently is people start to conflate best practices with the preservation of the status quo. And uh-huh. <laughs> I don't I don't know that I'm buying it as much as I used to. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, I've been having a lot of discussions recently about how and, and I, this is not my idea. I forget where I heard it from. I was probably on Twitter talking about how once the word best practice comes into a conversation, that's basically a way of shutting down discussion. It's like, well, this is best practice, so we can't really talk about why we're doing it or what the pros and cons are. Let's just go forward. That's like that. We've always done it this way. Yes. Yeah. This is how it's, it's like everyone does it done. this way. Everyone does it this way. Well, no, not everyone. Let's talk about who specifically does it this way, why they decided to do it this way, and why we can't try doing it a different way, right? Like people are like, oh, this is this is the way things are done. This is best practices. Well, who determines these best practices? What is their motivation behind deciding that this is a best practice? I have not read. Okay, this this leads me to like, I have not read Winners Take All yet, but I have been hearing so much about it. And I'm following Anand on Twitter. And everything he says, I'm just like, gosh, I really need to support you and read your book because you really do know your shit. And it's something that is of particular interest to me as someone who spent a lot of time working in the nonprofit industry and then came over to tech and saw a lot of the same sort of systemic practices playing out right? Nonprofit boards and VCs have a lot in common. I'll say that they have a lot that they don't have in common, but they have a lot in common. Yep. (laughs) I'm really struck by what you said about the problems not being that hard and it just being people's resistance to them. I wonder what the solution is to that because I feel like you hear a lot of times in marginalized communities, like, you know, it's not this marginalized community's responsibility to, like, end racism or end transphobia or whatever. Like, it's it's the majority that of, of people that are causing this problem. Like, it's their responsibility to end it. And, like, I believe that, but I also believe that, like, that might not happen. And so, like, there's a line where it's like, okay, well, this isn't really – I have this belief that this isn't my responsibility, and yet I'm going to try – 
to do something to lessen resistance to it anyway. And like, I'm wondering what your thoughts on that are. Oh man, that's a hard one. I think that's another big challenge, right? In addition to like, the solutions are here, it's just people's resistance to them is at the end of the day, like who can solve these problems and who should solve these problems? That's tough. I'll tell you from my own perspective, I kind of have to hone my skills and I'm, and I don't think I'm super great at this yet for knowing when to step in and contribute because I have the bandwidth and the wherewithal to do it. And I'm the right person for this, but also knowing when to take a step back and maybe leverage some of that original superpower that I was talking about of getting other people to do what I want them to do without them knowing that they're doing it because I want them to, right? For me, what has worked, and and I, you know, by no means believe that this will work for everyone, is there are moments when I say, I'm the person that needs to step in, and I'm the person who can really help us move through this issue. And there are moments where I call on my allies, and I say, you are constantly asking me how to make things better, what you can do. I'm going to tell you exactly what you can do in this particular situation with respect to this issue that we're going through right now. And I need you to go in and do it because right now I don't have the bandwidth. I don't have the wherewithal. You're someone who says that you want to do this work. I'm calling on you right now to do this work. And sometimes they'll say, okay, but I'm scared. (laughs) And I'll say, it's okay. Mm -hmm. You know, I can help you. I can hold your hand through it. And sometimes I won't say I'll hold your hand through it. Sometimes I'll say, you have no right to be scared. You are much better at this than you think you are. And I think that sort of reassurance and validation is is really helpful for people sometimes, you know, because we can too easily slip into fear. And then that will render us completely immobile. But that's not beneficial to anyone. So I think, you know, for me, it's really been a balance of knowing when I can and should step in and knowing when I need to call on others because I do struggle with that too, Jamie. There's a part of me that's like, man, I didn't create these problems. Why the hell am I having to solve these problems? It shouldn't be my responsibility, right? But I go back to, if not me, then who? And, you know, I call on my ancestors and I ask them for fortitude and then I continue as best I can. And when I can't do it, I call on those people who say, call on me when you need me. And there, there are, a, I'm, I'm very lucky in that I have come across a lot of people who have said to me, call on me when you need me. And it's really, really incredible to see. And even like, it's a really amazing experience, even for them to see that they have more agency than they thought they did. And they have more knowledge than they thought they did. And I think once you, kind of put yourself out there and you get over that fear and you advocate for someone or you amplify a voice or you, you know, call someone out for something that was offensive, you realize that it's not as terrible or as scary as you might have initially thought it was. And it makes it a little easier to do going forward. But this is actually a little part, I think, a little part of my Ruby Conf talk, which I remember talking about was this sort of, you know, fear is such a like primal instinct for us. And I don't think that even we realize on a daily basis how much it's controlling our ability to make decisions to move forward. But I think human beings are still, I mean, like fear is up there as one of the big motivating factors or motivating or, you know, preventing us from doing stuff, I think. Yeah, I find it it can often be such a subtle influence that it'll just block out certain thoughts that like you're like, oh, I could do X or I could do Y, but Z and F are sitting there, but you're afraid of them. And so they don't even come up as options. And you're just like, well, I, I, I only have these two options. These are yeah. the options I do. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God, I do that too. Yep. <laughs> and I think it's like a practice thing. Like when you're talking about like, I stand up about something and I realize I have agency. Like it's a good feeling to realize you have agency. But I also think at least definitely in my experience that like practice, like, oh, I can't stand up about this. We can't correct someone because I'm scared. And like the more you practice it, the more you see that it's not so hard or maybe you have positive results or maybe you don't always even have positive results, but it's like 
practicing this like muscle of like having this instinct of, well, when someone says something wrong, I'm going to say something regardless of like what the outcome of that is. Oh my gosh. Okay. So Jamie, you just touched on something. So I've been thinking about writing a medium post actually about, and I specifically have called it the muscle, (laughs) right? Because I do feel like there are some people who were like those toddler bodybuilders, like from a very young age, we have had to figure out how to flex these muscles and build these muscles of navigating this sort of stuff. Because again, you know, I think for people from marginalized backgrounds, we are navigating an entire society that was not designed for us. And so we have had to develop these skills and develop these muscles in a way that folks for whom society was designed for haven't had to. And oftentimes, I think this is where the argument, you know, that drives me absolutely crazy comes up where like, you know, black women are going to save us. No, let's not say that. Let's not ever say that. Like, no, black women are going to save themselves. And they are allowed to do that. And the rest of us will most likely reap benefits from that because, you know, when it comes to marginalization, black women experience a shit ton of it, right? We live in times where we all need to be going to the gym of agency and building up our muscles and building up our strength in order to advocate for ourselves and for others and not be afraid of doing that and practicing it. It is a muscle. It is absolutely a muscle, I think. Yeah, it definitely is. I think sometimes Mm -hmm. advocating for others is easier than advocating for yourself in some ways. I see this particularly, I mean, I see this my whole life with like anxiety. Like, you know, people are like, how can you stand up when you have like anxiety? I'm like, well, if someone else wants something, then it's fine. If I want something, then forget it. Um, But like you see that, I think you see that in this context a lot too. Like when I was talking about like flexing the muscle, I guess, like the big one that comes up all the time for me is like when people misgender me and like a lot of people that just don't know any, like they're not trying to be jerks. I don't think they're bad people. I don't think they're bigots. They just don't like know what they should say. And so there's like, okay, well, am I going to correct the cashier that I'm never going to see again? Maybe not. But like, maybe I should like tell my physical therapist who I see two times a week. And like, there's a negotiation there. And, like, it's very nerve-wracking experience for me, even as I've been, like, practicing this muscle. But then, for someone else, it's easy. Like, if you misgender yeah. my friend, like, fucking forget it. Yeah. And so, like, it's kind of this situation um, that I've seen a lot of people in where it's like, okay, well, I'll correct people for you. And, like, you correct people for me. <laughs> hey, that works, right? Like, that's taking – I feel like that's taking some elements of shine theory, and applying it to everyday situations. Are you all familiar with what the, what the, the women in the Obama, yeah. Obama administration? Yeah. So, so basically shine theory, you know, principle was if you don't shine, I don't shine. And so there would be, I think like cabinet meetings or meetings where there were multiple women in the room and one woman would say something. And if someone would talk over her or interrupt her or not acknowledge her idea, um, and I'm saying women, and I'm I'm thinking it went beyond women, and it was probably anyone who experienced any kind of marginalization. Somebody else would speak up and be like, oh, I want to get back to this person's point and talk a little bit more about that. And using that, like building up those friendships and having having those people who you can do that with is super, super, super powerful. Because I feel like I'm the same way. Like, when it comes to me, you know, I turn into like, you know, a dork and I get all all shooks and like I don't want you know to do anything but like when it comes to other people no problem absolutely stand up figure it out yeah and correct folks or advocate for folks yeah it's funny I remember taking a mindful self-compassion class a few years ago and I could be wrong but I do remember the person saying that that's like a very western thing to be more willing or likely to take care of other people and put ourselves last. Whereas in other cultures, you cannot take care of anyone else until you first take care of yourself and put yourself first. That's hard, though. That's really hard. (laughs) Yeah, one thing that's actually helped me in that is realizing the level of privilege I have in these in, in most contexts, and realizing that that in fact protects me and that it's if, if, if I can't do that thing, 
if I can't take the risk, then certainly no one else is going to go out there and risk even more than I am. So it's sort of like, a you know, who, who else is going to do it but I? And even to the point of thinking about it uh, as like, well, I do have all this privilege, so it probably won't even be that bad. Like, I, and so I can, I can go do this. It's still a learning process. And like you said, a muscle that I'm trying to build up more. But I think that's part of the thinking, at least that helps me get through there. Yeah. I mean, I've been thinking about it myself in terms of paying attention to the degree of privilege that I carry as a light-skinned Latina and what that means when I think about darker-skinned Latinos or indigenous Latinos or Afro-Latinos and how I need to really use my voice and not only advocate for people, because I think advocating for people is important, but I think we need to be really mindful of when we are taking up space, but really figuring out how to amplify the voices of other people, right? And not have ourselves be part of this equation, but say, look, I'm using my position and my platform. But what I really want you to focus on is this other person who understands this experience much better than I do, and who can teach you a lot more than I can and whose voice is not as common as mine or not given as much of a sounding board as mine is. That's been something that I've been thinking about a lot. And I, oh, man, man, do I fuck up sometimes. Like, yeah, I do. But I have too much love to stop entirely. And so even if I do fuck up, I'm going to continue to try and educate myself and work on it. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> this seems like a good time just to go into reflections. One thing that's staying with me right now is actually, Christina, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but like talking openly about the loneliness, like hearing that someone else feels that. I'm not going to say it like makes me feel better, right? I don't want to be like, oh, your loneliness makes me feel better. But I'll say it makes me feel a little bit less alone. And it makes me grateful that I brought it up because it turns out that it was something that other folks felt too, right? And now we can all feel a little less alone today. It goes back to what you were talking about with going to that healing circle. Like I think that also ties in with the doing things in person. Like that's one of those places where you can really find the salve for that loneliness, especially when you can go into a space that's safe enough where you can share those, those things that you're not allowed to talk about in the larger world because it reflects on you. And, and it, it, I think that's great from a general perspective, but like the more intersections you add on top of that, the more difficult it is, but I think also the most more rewarding where if you can get to that point where you can, share that as Latinas and say, you know, this is this is my experience, but I'm not allowed to have this experience. Basically, I think that's really amazing. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I think my uh, the other part of my reflection is at the beginning, you were talking about having to develop all these superpowers as part of your coping strategies, just growing up as who you are and in the context that you're in. And I just wanted to acknowledge that like it's growing up as in a marginalized community, you have to develop all of these superpowers mm -hmm. because that's the only way to get through to get to where you are now. And it's somewhat tragic that life is sort of forcing you to develop all these coping, these strategies. Uh, and so we can, we can all hope for a day where they're not required, but at least you can acknowledge that some good things have come out of that, that you have mm. these abilities that you can use that experience and the things that you learned coping with that to help other people and to help move things forward and to hopefully eliminate the need for other people to develop those skills. Yeah. It's challenging because there's a part of me that thinks like, yeah, I really would have liked to have had it a little easier from a younger age. But then there's also a part of me that acknowledges that Maybe I wouldn't have those superpowers, right? If I had had it a little easier. So I don't know. I want to think about that one a little bit more. You're right that they, you know, they came out sort of as like skills that I needed to develop really quickly. And in some situations, they were definitely coping mechanisms and coping mechanisms are something that we use to 
to heal and to survive. And from that perspective, it's challenging to have to do that. And also, I struggle with self-love, but I would I would say that these are definitely attributes that I have come to really, really value. And they make me different. And and like I said, you know, it's my identity, which has shaped my experience, which has allowed me to have all of these qualities. And it's, and if I hadn't been born to immigrant parents, if I hadn't been born brown, if I hadn't been born lower income, I wouldn't have these things. I think something that's really sticking with me from this conversation is what you said about when times are really tough, you also kind of get to see sometimes the best of human connection. When you were talking about like, you know, repressing all of this trauma that people have been experiencing living in like the current climate. I mean, you were talking about, you know, I can't process this. I have to work. I have things to do. I have things to focus on. But I think there's also an aspect of just like, I don't want to think about this because it's so depressing that like, I can't let myself feel these feelings. And that's a thing that like a kind of more personal version of like feelings repression that I've definitely experienced. And so I think that spending some time really focusing on these more positive experiences that have come out of it, like maybe could give you the energy to like also let yourself feel the bad feelings that otherwise maybe you don't feel like emotionally prepared to feel. And so sometimes I feel kind of almost guilty about like trying to focus on the good because like I don't want to take away from like this bad situation that's hurting me and lots of people that's like caused this good. But I think that if you think about it more as like, I need to focus on this for self care. But if I do, I can also allow the rest of these emotions into my heart, I guess, is like a more balanced way. Yeah, we have a very, it's funny, I noticed this working in tech of how conflict averse tech can be. And it's not even like conflict averse, how like, uncomfortable averse. (laughs) Right? Anything that is perceived as remotely negative or remotely uncomfortable, we have to kind of, you know, sweep it under the rug a little bit. And I wonder, I do wonder how much of that is a sort of American culture thing, right? Like I think about this is one of the things that I had to explain to my parents, because I remember my dad was like, why do they say things like don't upset your mother? (laughs) And I was like, Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and he was talking about white people, because he was like, you upset your mother all the time. I upset your mother all the time. We talk about everything in front of your mother that upsets her. Like, why is, and there is some, and we could go really, really deep into this and, you know, discuss the sort of historical practice of sheltering and protecting white women. Or we could just talk about it as a sort of surface level American thing, um, which I think is also valuable of like, you know, don't rock the boat, don't cause negative feelings, don't, you you know, don't ruin dinner, don't do this. I have, I have a friend, and he's cis and white, and he's gay, and his parents are huge Trump supporters. And he is having such a hard time with them right now. And he's like, I just can't talk to them. And, I, and to me, that concept is kind of foreign. I'm like, what? you can't talk to your parents. Like, that's weird. But he's like, no, you don't understand. Like, we just, we just don't talk about it. And I'm like, bro, I think you need to talk about it. But at the same time, like, you know, I can empathize with like, oh, how hard that must be as like a gay man to have your parents supporting this guy. Like, is it a matter of like, we can't talk about it? Or is it a matter of like, it's too hard and it hurts too much? To me, that's super sad, but. You know, again, maybe it goes back to that muscle of we, we maybe also haven't quite built up the built up the muscle to be able to have tough conversations. Yeah, I, I think white American, especially middle class, upper class culture is is so unused to that 
being have to be uncomfortable at any point ever. Like the whole thing is based on preventing that from ever happening. And that's translated directly into business culture. And, and again, that's, that's a diversity problem because the other people aren't running the businesses and making that sort of context. Okay. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I think it's a mental gymnastics thing too. It's like, I can relate to what you're talking about with your friend, not from my parents, but from other people in my family. And like, it really feels like that, like we could not talk about this and I can pretend like you don't have like disrespect for me and my community or we could talk about it and then we cannot have a relationship anymore. Like, I really think those are the two options. So it's like, Ugh, I can not yeah. rock the boat and like do these mental gymnastics about it such that I don't have to cause this situation. And like, I just caught myself saying it as if like my existence is what's causing the situation. But like, it's really tough. Yeah. 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 I have no doubt that it is. <sighs> <laughs> This was on that note. I know. I almost like don't want to leave that because that was like a really bad way to end. I feel. I don't want um, to end in the end. But maybe it'll make people a little uncomfortable <laughs> to leave it hanging like that. And maybe that uncomfortableness is not entirely a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs>